Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up, we're in Washington, D.C. to report on the winter gathering of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. The meeting is an opportunity for local leaders to get together and share best practices, but also for the federal government to show it values mayors and the power that they have over the future of our cities. We'll be hearing from Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb. Either you back the blue or you want to defund the police. To me, those are completely two false narratives that no one has any business in engaging in. Speak with Regina Romero, mayor of Tucson, Arizona. There's value in what undocumented workers bring to this country. And hopefully in Tucson, we would be able to see that value. And even Helsinki's mayor, Johanna Vartiainen, who was in town to share a lesson or two from his part of the world. Gun violence are phenomena that are really on the table of most U.S. mayors. This is not the case in Europe, and it is certainly not the case in Finland or in Helsinki. All that and much more coming up right here on The Urbanist over the next 30 minutes. So let me hand you over to today's guide, Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak. This is The Urbanist. Joe Biden pulled out all the stops for this year's winter meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Washington. He invited mayors to the White House last Friday and sent pretty much his entire cabinet to attend the meeting itself, from the Secretary of State to the Attorney General to housing and drug prevention policy heads. And even if mayors have plenty of grumblings about the state of politics in Washington these days, those we spoke to saw Biden's full-court press as recognition that city halls are the ones dealing with some of America's biggest challenges. And boy, are there a lot of challenges. Here's Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb. Probably haven't had a president who believes in the importance of American cities since FDR like we have in President Biden. And the fact that through the American Rescue Plan, this administration gave direct aid to cities has gone a long way. The fact that he's appointed many members of his cabinet as former mayors, shows the importance that uh, this administration believes that we change this country one city at a time. Being here, listening to some of the panels, they're all incredibly sobering, frankly. It feels like there is just a confluence of challenges that Mm -hmm. mayors are facing at the moment, homelessness to public safety, gun crime, the fentanyl drug crisis. Is there something unique about this moment in your Mm -hmm. mind? Despite the fact that we've seen probably since LBJ, an historic level of federal legislation passed. The most vexing issues, in my opinion, aren't going to be changed from the halls of Congress. They're going to be changed from city halls. This is the era of the city. This is the era of localism, in my opinion. And everything from protecting abortion rights to making sure we think differently about how to cut down on violent crime to ensuring that we have a climate that is just and sustainable over time, to addressing this issue we have with immigration reform. All those issues are on our front doorsteps now as mayors. And we don't have the luxury of of waiting to the next election. We get a survey of how we're doing 
every single day we leave our homes. Our residents want change and results now. And I think if we continue to elevate the role of America's mayors, then the ideals of this country will be realized long term. I wanted to get to something that's a little specific about Cleveland, looking at public safety and policing. Cleveland's been kind of a pioneer in creating these citizen commissions to oversee the police, and that was something that you supported, part of the reason you became mayor, essentially. Tell me a little more about the process in getting these citizen commissions set up and how it's gone so far. You know, you mentioned that Cleveland has been a pioneer. We have. In fact, this has been a 100-year journey. You know, the world's first community foundation was started in Cleveland, and they did a report nearly 100 years ago on policing and policing in the city. And we are the only city in the country that's ever been under two consecutive consent decrees with the Department of Justice. And so last municipal election cycle in 2021, I was the only major candidate in the race for mayor to endorse this ballot initiative passed with over 60% of the vote. And in this commission, we have the toughest independent civilian oversight board, I believe, in America, where residents of our community will have the final say on police misconduct and police discipline in our city. And we seated our commission last December, and through the work that we're doing, we wanna show America how to get it done. And we made great strides as a department under our consent decree. We've seen double-digit declines in use of force cases and complaints against police, but we still have a long way to go. The other thing I think it's important to note here in this conversation is the political narrative around policing has been too polarized. Either you back the blue or you want to defund the police. To me, those are completely two false narratives that no one has any business in engaging in. The bottom line is this. We can support our men and women in blue every single day and hold them accountable when they get out of line. To me, that should be how this nation does policing because whether you live on the east side of Cleveland or the west side of Cleveland, every resident wants the same thing. They want the police to show up on time, but respect their rights as hardworking, taxpaying citizens. And that's the mandate we're trying to deliver on right here in the city of Cleveland. Well, I did want to talk about one other aspect. I was in the panel talking about the fentanyl epidemic, and you spoke very passionately in that, Mm. also about your own personal experience from the crack epidemic in Cleveland and how your mom, even as I understood, got into social work in part to help Mm. during that time in the 90s. This is a personal issue for a lot of mayors, isn't it? Yeah. I have stark memories of seeing people I grew up with who got addicted to crack or drugs early on, who became drug dealers. They were model students in kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade. But one bad decision, one bad night out, changed their whole lives. And what we're seeing right now is a deadly drug that is not just preying on poor working class folks, but this is targeting everybody in our country. Just in 2021 in Cleveland, we had over 340 drug overdose deaths in our cities. That's more than homicides, more than traffic fatalities. It's the leading cause of death. That's a major problem. And so we need a a national strategy where mayors are at the table getting direct resources to address this issue. And we need law enforcement to step up. Uh, We need our U.S. attorneys to be more aggressive to ensure we can crack down on these cartels 
that are preying on our streets. And I think more than anything, we need an honest conversation in this country about the power and the importance of treatment. Treatment is not bad. It's an on-ramp to a better life. It's an on-ramp to hope. It's an on-ramp to purpose. And we need to be honest about the power of treatment and the ability it has to change lives. Now, while it's true that city halls across the nation face very similar challenges, there is something different about being a mayor from a town near the border. Regina Romero, mayor of Tucson, Arizona, is among those on the front lines of an American immigration crisis that has become something of a political football, as Republican governors from southern states have been literally bussing and flying migrants to Democratic-run cities in the north. Mayor Romero says that's led to a lot of inquiries from other mayors about what she's doing in Tucson. Being the largest city in Arizona closest to the border, it really is a blessing. And mayors sometimes get upset at me, those especially the ones that have been receiving asylum seekers in their cities most recently. I think they get a little upset at me because usually I turn around and say, we've been doing this for decades And we already have a process, right? The city of Tucson partners with churches, nonprofit organizations, with our county government. And now, thanks to President Biden, now with the White House and the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA. So Tucson has always been a welcoming city to asylum seekers, and we want to treat them in a dignified and humane way. We have to remember these are people and human beings. And so we already have a process. And yes, we have been seeing a surge in numbers of people coming through. We are prepared, though. And now we can tap into FEMA funds. Emergency disaster funds. Yes, emergency disaster funds that are very specific for these uses. So we are seeing some movement, whatever movement that President Biden can do. You know, he's making sure that we're adding numbers so that we can have immigration judges at the border to be able to process claims, asylum claims. But I understand mayors that, you know, are recently new to this issue. I've offered my help to New York mayor, Chicago mayor, D.C. mayor, Denver mayor, and told them there's no reason for you all to reinvent the wheel. We know what we're doing and and we want to share. The biggest issue for people to understand is that people that are coming through seeking asylum usually spend 24 at the most 48 hours in our city and that's happening in other cities that are receiving asylum seekers only because they're wanting to connect to their family or their sponsor in other places of the country so what we do is receive them in a dignified way offer possibly a bed for them to sleep in we are checking them for covid testing them. If they want a vaccine, we give them to them and connect them via transportation to wherever they are headed. Because of the way the system is set up here, you as a city, Tucson, so many other cities deal with this challenge of having, it's a problem everywhere, but it's different in the U.S. in that there is no status. In other countries, in a city, you typically do at least have a status. These people, they are registered, undocumented yes, immigrants, undocumented. as it's called. That's How right. does a city deal with having undocumented people? Many mayors talked about this as well. It is so unfortunate. And I'll be very straightforward. 
Democrats in the House of Representatives passed a comprehensive immigration reform bill because of the lack of willingness of the Republicans in Congress. And in the Senate, we have not passed an immigration bill. Without that, nothing will work. What are the biggest impacts on the ground of not having some kind of comprehensive reform bill? Well, on the ground, we see this throughout this country, right? It's not just singular to Tucson. We see people that want to work, that come here for a better life, not able to report their income. Many times they get paid cash, they get abused, not paid. It allows a lot of activity that is against workers. And we have the example of the dreamers. It's very, very hard for dreamers to attend colleges and universities. Children's of undocumented immigrants. That were brought here as children. We have kids that, you know, they've gone to public schools. We've invested money in them already. And they cannot go on to the next step of fulfilling their dreams. Do you think you will see comprehensive immigration reform in our lifetimes? And how would that change things for Tucson? I would hope that we do see immigration reform in my lifetime. It is the right thing to do. The facts, they're very clear. There is value in what undocumented workers bring to this country. And hopefully in Tucson, we would be able to see that value and be able to have asylum seekers and immigrants be able to report to the IRS, pay their taxes, which they are, by the way, they are adding to our tax base even if they don't have a social security number. But it would help workers and families that are ready and willing and have dreams of living a better life. And it will filter the work that Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, what they're doing to focus on the criminal element versus the individuals and families and people that are passing through just to find a job in a better life. One of the administration officials that U.S. mayors heard from last week was Antony Blinken, the first ever U.S. Secretary of State to address the Conference of Mayors. A few European mayors were also invited to join the meeting. They participated in the roundtables and offered solutions to some of the common problems between them, from tackling climate change to confronting hate speech and extremism. Helsinki's mayor, Johanna Vartiainen, was one of those in attendance. In the U.S., it is obviously gun violence and hate speech that we just discussed in the recent panel. But gun violence are phenomena that are really on the table of most U.S. mayors. This is not the case in Europe, and it is certainly not the case in Finland or in Helsinki, which is a very safe city. But it's still very interesting to discuss approaches to preventing violence and hate crimes. Well, as you say, you were just on a panel about confronting hate crimes and extremism. I wonder if there was anything that surprised you. Well, I already knew that these issues are very much on the agenda of most U.S. mayors, but it was sobering, as you say, to hear how large this problem has become, how much incidents of racism, anti-Semitism, even violence do occur all the time in the United States. 
at the same time, there is a lot of hope listening to these mayors and state representatives like State Secretary Anthony Blinken. One sees the United States reacting to that as a country, starting to speak of compassion. And I tried to make my contribution by emphasizing how important it is to have an inclusive school where every young person can feel part of the community and nobody gets alienated. Speaking of your approach, you also described it in the room as the sort of soft Scandinavian approach. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, basically it's the idea of trying to prevent some people becoming bad guys in the first place. And there, the basic services provided by a city can play a huge role. Since many people who engage in violent hate crimes, they tick many boxes of not being well. Like often they have a history of mental problems, they are very lonely, they have not taken part in culture or sports activities at school, their health problems have not been addressed, their families might have been unemployed for a long time. And all these phenomena are such that we can, to some extent, have an impact on with our services. We can see to it that our school psychologists take care of children who do not feel well. We can try to get everybody involved in sports and cultural activities. We can improve the employment situation in the city. So it is an indirect approach. And in the long run, I think it's the approach that works. One other thing that you mentioned in there that struck me was the importance of people feeling like there is no place in the city that they cannot go to, that there are no no-go areas, if you will, in a city. That's a big problem for many cities, but especially here in the United States. How do you go about tackling that? Well, in Helsinki, we have emphasized a couple of things. Firstly, we try to mix all kind of housing in all parts of the city. Privately financed, owner-occupied housing and rental housing and even subsidized rental housing are just mixed in every part of the city so that the city remains as homogeneous as possible. Then we also want to have a school system that is good everywhere. And this is a challenge even for us. We realize that we must start to practice a kind of positive discrimination in school resources to improve the schools in areas where the young people have greater challenges in their educational attainment. And then we very much emphasize good public transport infrastructure so that if there are two young people, two children in different parts of the city who are friends so that they can meet up easily. They can take a tram or the underground without being afraid, without being dependent on their parents. That's also a, a way of creating a city where everybody is sort of in the same boat. That's how we try to work. And then just finally, one other comment that struck me in there was the importance of mayors, the fact that mayors are perhaps uniquely positioned to confront uh, hate and extremism by bringing different groups together. I wonder how you yourself take advantage of that opportunity. Well, there I would say these U.S. mayors are a good example for a person like myself who is more a kind of technocratic manager. But when I listen to these U.S. mayors and their very powerful speeches about compassion and being together, I realized myself that I must try to a far larger extent that has so far been the case, I must try to be a value leader. So that is a very useful lesson 
for me from the United States. Now, one of the most heavily attended sessions was on housing. A lot of the attendees talked about housing shortages in their communities. And rather than expanding their city limits, many mayors talked about the need to revive old neighborhoods, and especially downtown areas, by turning at least some vacant office and hospitality spaces into residential apartments and making downtowns more attractive places to live. David Downey, president and CEO of the Downtown Association, an association for businesses operating in American center cities, begins by telling us about his ideal downtown. The question of what's ideal is, is emerging more and more, but it quite simply is a complete community. It's a complete neighborhood. I think all too often through the decades we've emerged with you know, single-use business districts or single-use residential areas, potentially some industrial spaces. But as we're learning, the most successful downtowns, the most successful center cities are places that embrace live, work, play, and thrive. What is your sense of how many cities are coming close to that ideal as you describe it? How many American cities? From a U.S. city perspective, I think we've seen great accomplishments, especially in the last decade prior to the pandemic. By that, it's the measure that we were seeing urban centers or downtown housing at faster growth rates than was occurring in the city as a whole. People were occupying, living, and working in their downtowns. And by and large, I think over the last decade and a half, we're seeing a multitude of cities pretty much across the country, all of which are coming into their own. For a long time, there was more of an exodus away from the downtown, people moving into the suburbs and cities struggling to figure out how to use their downtowns, how to revive them. We're here at the Conference of Mayors winter meetings, and I'm curious from your perspective what you've told mayors about that challenge and how to go about it. What we are seeing today, especially coming after the pandemic, is that we didn't have a complete retreat at all. As a matter of fact, the demand for urbanism has never been stronger. What we see and what I'm telling the mayors is rather than focusing on whether we'll come back 100% pre-pandemic, the market may deliver 80% back to where we were. But we had challenges to begin with. So let's think creatively about how we can address those exact challenges with perhaps the 20% the of the market that's shifting. And now we have an opportunity to keep going even stronger. At the outset, you talked about mixed use since the pandemic, it's become much more important to have this, you know, the idea of the five-minute neighborhood. Everything where you are, is that something that a downtown can, should offer? I love that you use the term five-minute neighborhood or 15-minute city or 20-minute city because I think that's the aspiration that we are all looking toward. We had some legacy areas that were largely single-use. During the pandemic, those which were already emerging towards mixed use were more resilient than the single-use business and office environment. So therein lies one of those potential opportunities. If 20% of the underutilized space that was once office, perhaps Class B, Class C buildings, can be accelerated into more mixed use and residential, we're just going to keep building on the success of our center cities. It has been interesting hearing from some of the mayors here just about the challenges that come with that, whether they talk about zoning laws, they, I mean, they get into some pretty nitty-gritty, of course, here at the Conference of Mayors. But how do you help them accelerate this process of creating mixed-use downtowns? Well, the mayors are absolutely correct. It is about the nitty-gritty. All development deals, all planning and development projects, they take time and they take a multitude of 
you know, layered financing mechanisms. In other instances, there may be zoning implications that need to be resolved by the municipality to allow for a mixed-use project in a certain district. It's the blocking and tackling that is actually part of city building, and it's really looking for that partnership between the public sector and the private sector that will, in the end, be the most successful. Talk to me a little about the private side as well and their their role in this. With downtowns changing, there has to be a recognition that it's not all about business anymore. You need the residential. You need to maybe give up office space. How is that working? Do investors recognize the changes? The private sector development organizations are cut from a variety of different cloth. When we look at institutional long-term investments, you know they're going to be less flexible typically on what they're used to doing, and they're going to take a little bit longer to evolve into what may become our, our new normal moving forward. But we have an enormous number of private investors, family investors, community builders who are there to be part of the community. They're willing to take that risk. They're willing to look at things differently. And especially if they're a partner in the community, it's their home. And just finally, not to put you on the spot, but what is your favorite American downtown? (laughs) I don't have one favorite American downtown. Give me a few. Um, You know, I I grew up in the Detroit metro area, and so Chicago was always my first, you know, big city. Through my work, I've fallen in love with New York City. But, you know, Huntsville, Alabama, I have to tell you, has been doing some amazing work over the last decade. And virtually everywhere I go, my members who are working in the Center City Districts show me all the authentic charm and beauty and just the cultural assets and identities that exist in their cities. And I almost fall in love with just about everywhere I visit. And finally, we leave you with the thoughts of Maria Rosario Jackson, chair of the National Endowment of the Arts, the U.S. government's chief cultural agency. Dr. Jackson was here to promote an arts and design initiative she's running together with the mayors, and she reflected on how the role of the arts in serving our well-being and their place in our communities has been changing over the past few years. I'm really inspired when I go around the country and I see how people's thinking about how to use their physical spaces has evolved. When you couldn't have crowds, you had to think about how do you program outside if that was an option, right? Or how do you reimagine space such that it could conform to health codes? And I think that there was a lot of experimentation and piloting of new ways of thinking about arts participation that have legs and utility beyond a pandemic state, right? So you're seeing, in some cases, and just because this week I had a lot of contact with performing arts organizations in particular, so that's present for me, but some of the sharpest performing arts organizations are thinking about, you know, what is the connection of virtual participation to live engagement? You know, what is that spectrum? Is there a bridge there? There's perhaps more nimbleness and flexibility around understanding what could be an arts venue. You know, programming that's happening, maybe not in the main physical presentation venue that they're used to working in, but more programming happening in communities in what one might think of as unconventional settings, let's say. So there's this explosion of ideas that are not limited by some of the rules that we felt we had to abide by.
before. I mean, you see it in many, this is not necessarily the arts as performing arts or visual arts, but even if you look in cities and, and how restaurants have reimagined their spaces to include outdoor spaces, and some of that, people have held on to that, right, without the necessity to conform to a health code anymore. But they figured out, oh, this is valuable in a way that I didn't understand before. And a special thanks to Chris Chermack there. That's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get every new episode directly to you every single week. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to Monocle magazine for regular reports on all things urbanism. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Arcade Fire with Sprawl. Thank you for listening, city lovers. (laughs) 